It always takes two to tango, even when it comes to fraud. There is the scammer who knows all the hooks to pull us in, and the target with the thinking and reasoning habits that can be weaponized against them. Scams, fraud, fake art, cheating, phishing emails, they come in all shapes and sizes, but almost always use similar tactics. Psychologist Daniel Simons and Christopher Shabri look at everything from investment cons to fake news and bogus research to explain why the way our brains work can make us vulnerable to scams while offering practical tips to recognise even the most clever lies. Their book is Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. And probably all of us have someone in our lives for whom this would be a great Christmas gift. Well, Daniel Simons joins me now. Hi. Hi, how are you? Really good, thanks. This will make our listeners feel better. It's a quote from US General James Mattis who says, Once in a while we can all be fooled by something, and that includes him. Maybe his story is a good one to start with, how he managed to get taken in by the company Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. Her claim was that she'd invented a machine that could test blood with a single drop. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really interesting case. Um, they claimed to be able to test uh, blood for, a single drop of blood for many, many different things with this tiny little miniaturized device. When most other companies used industrial strength large machines to do this and required a lot more blood. And the promise of it was really appealing, right? This is a great vision. If you could have a, a small machine that could do all of these things, it could be portable, it could be cheaper to use, it could be even used for military purposes. And I think that's one of the things that attracted Mattis to the idea that maybe Maybe this is something that could actually be used in the field. And that's something that Elizabeth Holmes promised. Um, what's interesting about that case is James Mattis was on the Theranos board, along with other retired military personnel and former secretaries of state and other really prominent people. Uh -huh. And I think one thing that his quote illustrates to us is that we tend to think that the people who get fooled or scammed or conned are somehow inherently more gullible yeah. or naive or kind of clueless. But these were among the most accomplished people in our society, and they fell for it because it targeted their desires. It appealed to them. The vision was ideal, and they just didn't question enough. So a lot of the people who were on that board were brilliant, accomplished people. They just didn't have any background in biotech. Well, they are human, and so their brains work in a way that allows them to be deceived. Can you explain how that happens and why that happens? Yeah, so there are a lot of different mechanisms that we tend to use by default that work great for us most of the time. And we call these cognitive tendencies habits because, you know, habits are generally things that we've learned to do that work really well for us. But if somebody's trying to deceive us, they can take advantage of them. They're essentially shortcuts that allow us to take in information and use it more efficiently. So there's these habits, these cognitive tendencies, ways of thinking, and there are also what we call hooks that are kinds of information that we find really appealing. So a habit, for example, might be the habit of focus, where we tend to pay attention to the information we have in front of us, mm. and we tend not to think about the information that we don't have, the information that we're not getting. So a lot of demos have this character, right? A corporate demo, say, for example, showing off an electric truck <laughs> that is driving on its own. This is something that the company Nikola did. Um, they show this truck just tooling along the highway and said it's driving <laughs> entirely by itself. Yeah. And 
in reality, it was going down a slight hill. It didn't have a functioning engine. And they just tilted the camera to make it look like it was flat. Right? <laughs> we, we take the information we've got and say, oh, this must be actually working. And it must work in other contexts. It much, must work in other situations. But we don't think about all of the attempted demos that didn't work or all of the situations where they tried it and it didn't function. We just take what we're given and generalize it to the reality. Do we tend to believe someone's telling the truth as a default? And if so, why? Yeah. So we do tend to assume that when we first hear something, we kind of treat it like it's true, the kind of a truth bias. And that's something that we have to do to be able to function in society. You can't mm. constantly be second guessing every single thing we encounter and see and hear from another person. We, we want to believe that people are true and you have to, to have a real conversation with anybody. Um, but that truth bias is what's interesting about it is it takes effort to take something that you initially thought was true and then to think more about it and maybe say, oh, maybe that's not right. Or maybe I should kind of withhold judgment on that. That extra effort is something that people looking to deceive us take advantage of. They just don't give us the chance, right? They keep you talking. They keep you thinking. They keep you responding, huh. not giving you time to kind of take a step back and say, wait a second, does this actually make any sense? You talked about focus and, and that's one of four habits you identify that work mm -hmm work for us most of the time, but can be turned against us. Can you talk to us about the possibility grid? Yeah. So the possibility grid is sort of a simple tool uh, that we don't generally think to use. It takes a tiny bit of effort, but when you think to use it, it can reveal all of the information that you don't have and that you actually need. So let's take the case of um, a business book. Let's say you've got a successful executive and you read this book and you learn about all of the things that they did and the implication in the book is, oh, those things they did are what made them successful so that you should mm -hmm. do them too, mm -hmm. right? It makes sense. That's that's why we read those books. Um, but to think about whether or not those things actually are associated at all with being successful, you have to think about, okay, how often have people tried those things and been successful? How often have they tried those things and failed miserably? <laughs> we don't hear about those cases. Yeah. And how many people did completely different things and were successful? or did completely different things and failed miserably. In order to know whether those things are even connected to success, you have to know the relative rates of success, whether somebody who tries the things that they claim they did are more likely to succeed. It might turn out, if you're just looking at the information in front of you and saying, oh yeah, these are the things that make you successful, it may turn out that those were actually counterproductive and the person was just lucky in spite of those. They may have succeeded despite having done all of those things as opposed to because of them. But the possibility grid allows us to sort of fill in that missing information. The uh, strategies that they attempted that didn't work mm. is one cell. The strategies that they didn't attempted, didn't attempt that worked and didn't attempt that didn't work are the other three cells in addition to the ones that were part of the success story. Successful and, people are great revisionists, right? <laughs> they can, they yeah, can look yeah. back on their life and, and make it look as if this was the plan the whole time. It all fits together in a neat story. Yeah. Well, and, and even if it was the plan the whole time, even if they weren't just storytelling, even if it is actually what they think contributed to their success, yeah. unless they can figure out whether those things actually always lead to success or consistently lead to success or even lead to it more than other things do, it's not really great advice to follow. Mm. Okay. Other habits, habits that usually serve us, but don't when we're being scammed, prediction how do yeah. scammers how do scammers use our preference for the world to be predictable? 
Well, it's not just that it's predictable. It's that we have to make predictions about what's going to happen in the future and what we think is going to happen. And predictions more broadly, we can think of like our expectations, what we expect to have happen. Um, so the problem with it is most of the time that's great because most of the time we want to be able to predict what's going to happen. And our expectations are based on our experiences. So it makes sense. The problem is if somebody wants to deceive you, they can just feed you exactly what you were hoping to see. And a lot of cases of people falling for forged art, for example, are cases where somebody was desperate to see a painting by this particular artist or really wanted to get it. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, I found this in my attic. And it passes it off as that thing because it's what you wanted to see. I think this is one of the main uh, sort of habits that leads to spreading of, of fake news, right? Because um, most people don't want to spread fake news. They don't want to deceive their friends and their family. But if you get something in social media that perfectly matches what you would expect to be true, right? whether or not it actually is true, we tend to pass it along. We tend to forward it. And those are the cases where it perfectly matches what we expected, so we're less likely to be critical of it. We're really good critical thinkers when somebody presents information that we completely disagree with. We can mm -hmm. take it apart. But when they present something that's what we're expecting, we don't tend to question it as Gosh, much. Gosh, that's interesting. This happens in science a lot, right? So one, one cause of scientific errors is we don't tend to question it if the results just come out exactly the way we wanted them to, right? So yeah. you run a study and you get your data and everything perfectly matches the way you hoped it would come out. You're probably not going to double check as much to make sure that your conditions weren't swapped in their labels or something like that. But if it comes out exactly the opposite of what you expected, you're going to dig into the data and see if you made a mistake, if you coded something wrong, if you if you calculated it wrong. Um, and that ability to double check when you disagree rules out a lot of errors, but we don't tend to double check as much when we agree, when we're expecting it or predicting it. Hard not to think about politics and other aspects of the culture war when you talk about that. You know, if we, yeah. if, a, if a politician from a party who we don't like does something that looks on the surface, maybe it was dodgy or like that maybe that they're uh, not a very nice person behind the scenes, we believe that quite quickly. Whereas if someone from the party we does we do like does something, we're more inclined to go, well, hang on, what are the actual details here? Let's give them the benefit yeah. of the doubt. Let's wait till we know all sides. Exactly. And we're, we're, we're really good at being critical thinkers about things we don't like. Amazing. <laughs> don't agree with. I love that, yeah. And I'm talking to Professor Daniel Simons, by the way. His book is called Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. I just want to mention one of my favorite things you've done, which is the invisible gorilla experiment. We've actually talked yeah. about that on the show before, and the last time I did it, I think I just told people, I didn't call it the Invisible Gorilla Experiment, I just yeah. gave them the information, but I think we'll just be transparent here and, and talk about what the experiment was, which is um, a video in which you are asked to count how many times people pass the basketball to each other. Now, while you're watching that, a gorilla walks through the shop, but if you're counting very carefully chances are you won't actually see that gorilla. I've done the experiment myself, and although it's right there in front of you, your eyes just doesn't don't see it. it does that say mm -hmm. something about expectations and um, the way that they affect what we do and don't see? It does. It, it, it's about our expectations. So we're given this task of focusing intently on, say, the players wearing white shirts and not the players wearing black shirts. And we can do that really well. We sort of build up an attention set, uh, a way of thinking that focuses in on what we're trying to do. Mm. 
And again, this is something that's really critically important. We need to be able to focus on what we care about and ignore distractions, right? And it just so happens that if you're ignoring distractions, sometimes you don't see something that you might actually want to because it's not expected. It's not what you're looking for. Um, I view this as a little bit like focus, that we zero in on the information that we're really intently interested in. And if I give you this task of counting, that's what you're interested in. And it means we don't always notice other things. And we come to kind of expect that we'll see the gorilla. People always believe that they'll see the gorilla because they have this experience that every time they've seen something unexpected, they're aware of it, but they're not aware of the times when they missed it. So for example, let's say you watched this video for the first time, you didn't see the gorilla, and I never asked you about a gorilla. You'd continue to go through life see, thinking, of course, you would spot a person in a gorilla suit dumping <laughs> their chest at the camera, yeah. right? Because your experience doesn't counter that. Your experience is of only the things you were aware of and that you noticed, but not the things that you didn't notice. And we're not just talking about gullible people here. I mean, this stuff applies. Oh, yeah. I'm probably going a bit off topic here, but I find it so interesting. It applies to, cogn uh, to, to scientists, right? Even oh, yeah. scientists yeah. can fall into the trap of seeing what they expect to see. Can we talk briefly about these there's two researchers accused of massaging their data on the effective effectiveness of the nudge. This is something we've talked about on the show before as well, motivating people mm -hmm. to do what you want with small incentives. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a general problem. The scientists are human, right? We We fall prey to the same sorts of tendencies that everybody else does, right? And just because you've got this extra education and training – we're supposed to be able to think critically about things we don't expect, but we don't always do it, right? So there are lots of big cases of, of scientific fraud in, and, and scientific misconduct in which people sort of build up the expectations for what they should be seeing and then present that to people. So uh, one thing that's really interesting about a lot of scientific misconduct is most science fraud doesn't involve claims that are incredibly radical or novel or earth-shattering. Right. They involve claims that are pretty much consistent with what people find in the literature, just slightly more interesting or novel mm -hmm. or slightly more heroic in their methods, mm -hmm. um, just enough to sort of stand out as really interesting and good, but not so far afield that people say, oh, wait a second, that can't be true. Yeah. So, yeah, take, for example, there was a paper, prominent paper published, and it's not a fraudulent paper. I fully believe that the researchers did everything that they said they did in which uh, they claimed to have that people could predict the future better than chance for a chance event, like flipping a coin. They could do it better than chance. Right. Wasn't actually flipping a coin, but the same idea. Right. And that paper was immediately challenged in lots of ways um, because nobody actually believed the result. It was too it was too implausible of a finding that there must have been something going wrong with the paper. It wouldn't make sense to create a fraudulent version of that because everybody would jump on it immediately and dig into what might be wrong there. But uh, if you take the case of, say, Diedrich Stoppel, um, who has, is an admitted uh, data forger, fabricator, um, he has had over 50 papers retracted for fraud, um, and he acknowledged that he did this. He made up the data. The studies that he did weren't like predicting the future of chance events. It mm. was studies that were completely consistent with the sorts of things that people in that literature would expect, just done slightly more creatively, huh. right? And you can be really creative if you don't actually have to collect the data. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, back to these habits, these habits that yeah. um, that we rely on in everyday life but can ha not help us when we're getting scammed. Commitment. We hold tight mm -hmm. to what we believe. 
Yeah, I mean, we make assumptions and we have to, right? We have to make assumptions about what's likely, what's going to happen in our world. But when we make those assumptions and we become so strongly tied to them that we never question them again, then we can get into trouble. So an example I really like of this is in the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, right? Um, people were absolutely convinced that Bernie was a straight up guy <laughs> who would never lead them astray. So much so that when one person was warned that maybe this was a Ponzi scheme, maybe you should stay away from it. The response was, oh, no, you just don't know Bernie. He would never screw us, right? He would never take advantage of us. Um, that commitment is so firmly held that you don't see all the red flags. And this happens in lots of contexts. It happens in, say, cults, where if you start with the premise that the cult leader can never be wrong or is infallible, always mm. tells the truth or is a genius, once you take that starting assumption, it becomes easier and easier to believe other things that follow from it. And you kind of end up down at the bottom of this rabbit hole and you really can't work your way back up until you question that starting assumption. But to everybody else looking from the outside, it, all of your beliefs look crazy because they don't have that initial commitment, that initial assumption. And efficiency is the other thing. We tend to mm -hmm. like efficiency, right? Yeah, we, and which is great, right? You want to get things done effectively and efficiently. But it leads us to not always questioning as much as we should, right? We don't, we take kind of empty answers as being true and we don't kind of dig a little bit more. And quite often, just asking one more question will reveal that there's a lack of information or that there's a potential problem, right? Had the Theranos investors who were seeing this demo of this little blood testing machine, had they asked, hey, is that machine right there, the one that's doing the test? Um, they might have found out that it wasn't. Right, It was actually big industrial machines in the back room. Asking one more question can often lead to a lot more information, but it's often socially really awkward to do it. Right? So if, mm. you, if you say, you know, uh, if somebody says, we did our due diligence, it can be really awkward to say, well, what did you do exactly? Right? Or yeah. if somebody says, this is a best practice, it's like, well, based on what? Right. What, what information are you using to say that this is a best practice as opposed to something else? And those sorts of empty, evasive answers sound plausible. And we kind of don't want to push back. We don't want to kind of ask questions because you you very quickly become socially awkward if you do. And there are a few things you can do that are really simple. One is ask a question that's not com uh, combative. So, you know, what else can you tell me? get people talking more, and that might lead to more natural Q&A. It might lead to getting more information out of people when you actually need it. I never expected the takeaway from this book to be, be more like Van Halen. But in what ways <laughs> can that band teach us something about avoiding scams? Yeah, so this is, a, this is a great story about what Van Halen used to put in their riders for their giant concert tours in the 80s, right? They had a long list of things that had to be set up for their uh, for their show. And one of the things they put in their rider was that they wanted a bowl of M&Ms in the green room, but with no brown ones, right? And this is kind of in keeping with sort of the, the sort of rock bands of the era trying to kind of show off by how much they could make people do. But at least according to David Lee Roth, one of the reasons that they did this was that it was a quick check on how much people were actually paying attention to the contract. Mm. So if they go into the dressing room and they find any brown M&Ms, then they need to be careful because maybe the people reading the contract weren't being that attentive to the details. And when you're setting up a giant stage show huh. with lots of scaffolding and pyrotechnics, 
you want people to be attentive to the details because, you know, somebody could die if that's set up incorrectly. So it was sort of a quick preventative check to make sure that people were actually doing what they were saying they were going to do. And just if there were no brown M&Ms, that brown M&Ms, that doesn't guarantee that everything was going to be fine. But if there were, if there were brown M&Ms, you knew to maybe check a little more closely. <laughs> okay. Final thoughts on what we can do to avoid being chosen by a scammer in the first place? Well, there's not really a general technique that you can use that's going to eliminate all risk because scams work when they target you, when they are targeting your desires, your interests, and taking advantage of the sort of shortcuts that you're taking. So most of us probably will not fall for an email from a Nigerian prince promising a share of his inheritance Hmm. if you send him money, right? Most of us aren't going to fall for that most of the time, right? The same person who does fall for it one day might not fall for it the next if they're no longer in this sort of state of mind where they're desperate for that. But lots of scams target very intelligent people and meet them where they are. Professors, for example, one scam that I've seen target professors is what we call a conference organizer scam. You get a call from somebody who says, oh, you're speaking at this conference. I've been asked by the organizers to arrange all your travel. Mm -hmm. And they ask for your flight preferences and your hotel preferences, and they ask for your credit card to put down incidentals at your hotel. But of course, they aren't actually the conference organizers. They just saw that you were speaking and called you. It's a a very well-timed scam capitalizing on the fact that people want to be efficient it's common for organ conferences to arrange for your travel. So it's targeting people where they are. And I think one of the biggest take-homes that I'd like to m- emphasize is that just because people fall for scams does not mean that they're gullible all the time, right? Even highly skeptical, critical thinkers yeah. can fall for scams if they're targeted. And I think the way to avoid scams is if you look at enough of them and think about the sort of principles underlying them, you start to see those commonalities and you start to see how they're taking advantage of you. That gives you just enough pause to say, wait a second, is this really true? And that question can really help a lot. Is this really true? The other one for big decisions is if I were scamming me, what would I do? If I were trying to (laughs) fool myself, how would I go about it? And thinking about it from the perspective of a scammer can help you reveal what are the risks here? What are the danger points and how can I challenge them? Love it. Uh, And there's so much more in the book as well, which is called Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. Professor Daniel Simons, um, thanks for your time today. Big fan of your work, and we really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk to us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.